ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Lock and load. It's time for the gun rack with your hosts, Joey and Drew. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the gun rack, Sonoran Desert Institute School of Firearms Technology's official podcast. I'm Drew Poplin here today with y'all. Uh, it's just going to be me today. This whole next month is going to be a bit odd as far as me and Joey getting on the same schedule. At the end of September, so like a month from now, I'm going to be at SDI Summit, which is basically like a company a company event for full-time employees. Going to have some meetings and stuff. I'll have to make sure to tell you guys all about it when I get back. So just want to give a little heads up for you on that. Today, we are continuing our Southern Battles of the American Revolution series, and it's weird. We have a bunch of different parts covering the whole series. This one of itself about King's Mountain, I thought it was originally just going to be kind of a quick, easy episode, but I started digging into it more. This is actually going to be a bit of a two-parter. So we're going to do part one, which is like, I guess, the prelude to the Battle of King's Mountain today, and we'll do part two here soon. So yeah, looking forward to actually talking about the uh, battle itself. But before we get into that, let's talk about SDI. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school that helps students learn the skills and techniques they'll need to be successful in the firearms and unmanned technology industries. Sonoran Desert Institute, a.k.a. SDI, is accredited by the Distance Education Accrediting Commission, the DEAC. And currently, SDI offers two programs in firearms technology. We offer the Associate of Science in Firearms Technology and the Certificate in Firearms Technology Gunsmithing. For more information about these programs and how you can get started, please go to www.sdi.edu. Now, just to clarify the order once again of how these battles chronologically went, the Battle of Kings Mountain occurred nearly two months after the Battle of Camden, which we've mentioned a couple times on the podcast now, and just over three months before Cowpins. So, um, yeah, just as a refresher, December 1778, the British invaded Savannah, Georgia. May 1780, the British finally took Charleston. I think it was like their third attempt to do so. Same month, Waxhaws happened. And then a couple months later, uh, on August 16th, 1780, the Battle of Camden. Oh, and by the way, the resources I used for uh, research, uh, of course, the National Park Service, uh, battlefields.org historyjunkie.com and what's becoming one of my favorite sources because they do a really good job of citing things is the journal of the american revolution uh they have a really good website a lot of information i've been learning so much uh so be sure to check them out and then also some recommended fun reading i can't speak for how accurate uh the details are this so i didn't really use a lot of the detail you know i didn't really use this as a source for the episode per se but if you want a really fun read that talks about this battle and some of the stuff we go over go to badassoftheweek.com slash over mountain men they have a really fun article about this I, I don't know if you guys ever 
wittocracked.com back in the day. Before that website kind of you know went off a cliff and uh was no longer fun and cool and funny. It kind of reminded me of one of their old articles. Um and um yeah, so if you just want something kind of fun and light to read, uh definitely recommend checking that out. So normally we've been approaching these from distinctly an American point of view, which you know makes sense. Me and Joey are Americans, of course, and I'm sure the vast majority of, of our listeners are American as well. And probably in part two, we'll approach this battle from more of an American perspective. But for part one, I really wanted to talk a bit about one of the figures in the battle that was British, and that being Patrick Ferguson. Now, Patrick Ferguson, he's a very complicated figure. And to tell you the truth, I can't really make heads or tails of this guy at all. I've attempted to do the best I can to build a complete picture of who he is. But, you know, trying to understand the psychology of people, especially back in those times, is kind of difficult. So I researched this as best I could. If I slip up here and there, apologies. But here's what we do know about Patrick Ferguson. So he is Scottish. He was born in 1744. And he began his military career as a teenager. He was briefly with a unit called the Scots Greys. But over the course of that period of time, he's picked up a leg ailment that sent him home. Now, there wasn't really a lot of detail about what this leg ailment was. All the sources I said, just leg ailment. So I don't know if this guy just, you know, tore his ACL or something like that. I don't know why I said it like that, just tore his ACL. That, that's brutal. But um, so he would go back home and then heal up and then he went to serve in the West Indies. And then the leg ailment kind of flared back up. And so he got sent back home again. So upon returning home, he would participate in some light infantry work as his ailment was healing up. But around 1770, and this is one of the big reasons I want to mention him, he actually adapted an earlier gun design by... Uh, I believe his name is Isaac de la Chamette. Chamette? Isaac de la Chamette. Um, <laughs> I, I know I butchered that, but he was actually the, so he adapted this and he was actually the creator of, you know, what you may be familiar with today. Uh, it's called the Ferguson rifle. And what's special about this is it was one of the first breech loading rifles to be used by the British military. Keep in mind, this is, you know, 1770. But they were able to have a rate of fire of six to eight shots per minute, which it was incredibly quick. So basically, and uh, this is a quote, the breach of the weapon is closed by 12 starting threads on a tapered screw. And the trigger guard serves as a crank to rotate it. So one complete turn dropped the screw low enough to drop a round ball into the exposed breech, followed by a slight overcharge of powder, which was then sheared to the proper charge by the screw as it closed the breech. A pretty, pretty inventive system. And you may be wondering, that sounds awesome. Like that rate of fire is very impressive for the time. Why weren't there more made? Well, apparently they were too expensive to mass produce. And according to what he was told, the British didn't really have time to train all these men on how to use it effectively. And what would happen, he would get injured during the course of a battle in, I think, 1777. 
he would get injured in the course of a battle in 1777 that put him out of commission so he couldn't even really show people how to use the rifle either but you know i'll get to that here in a second so yes Ferguson joined the Revolutionary War in 1777, and in September of that year, he took part in the Battle of Brandywine. So during the course of this battle, he had the opportunity to shoot a Patriot officer, looked pretty high-ranking officer, in the back. But he actually passed up the chance because the officer was not aware of Ferguson's presence. And, you know, that wasn't something that he... Uh, I, I think he felt like it'd be beneath him. There was no honor in that. And while this is most likely not true, it is the belief of some that the Patriot officer that could have been killed by Patrick Ferguson was none other than our commander-in-chief himself, George Washington. Again, that's probably not true, but it was just a little fascinating detail. So anyway, uh, same battle soon after that encounter. He actually was shot through the elbow. And so he had to spend a couple months in rehab. All the time, there's this like looming threat that his arm was going to be amputated. And as you guys know, amputation back in those days was, uh, well, I mean, it's a messy affair anyway, even today. But, you know, at least it's safer. Back then, yeah, it, it there was a good chance that it the amputation itself would kill him. But luckily for him, his arm eventually healed, although it ended up being pretty much, uh, it was crippled for the rest of his life. But during this time, the unit itself would be disbanded. But about a year and a month later, he would take part in the Battle of Chestnut Creek. Nearby, there was a area called Little Egg Harbor. And a week later, he got word from a Hessian defector. Uh, this guy kind of pulled a little bit of a Benedict Arnold. Apparently, he got into uh, squabbles with one of the commanding officers. You know, messy stuff. But uh, this Hessian defector told Ferguson about an American infantry outpost. So uh, Ferguson took his men basically to their doorstep, waited. He ended up waiting till sunrise. Uh, and then he ordered his men to fix bayonets and attack the men who were sleeping. This is a little bit called the Little Egg Harbor Massacre. But interestingly enough, Ferguson wasn't exactly triumphant or boastful about it, apparently. In fact, according to his own words, he was actually dismayed that the Patriot leader uh, named Count Pulaski, he was dismayed by the fact that he failed to post lookouts and was ill-prepared. Again, I don't know if this part is true necessarily, but it is kind of some juicy, a juicy rumor. So it is rumored that the Hessian dressed defector is actually Count Pulaski himself that gave Ferguson the information about his own camp. Interesting. Very interesting. Again, look, look into that yourself. You know, you could decide whether or not, you know, if that's fake news or whatever, but I just thought I'd mention it. Anyway, for Ferguson, a few years later, he would be transferred to the Southern campaign to help out Cornwallis. Um, as we mentioned before, Cornwallis was controlling the Southern strategy. So on Cornwallis's right flank, he would have Bannister Tarleton patrolling the coast. Uh, but on his left flank, he had Patrick Ferguson. And now Ferguson was not a fan of Tarleton. But apparently they had diametrically opposed views on how they should treat colonists. 
uh, in particular how they viewed civilians during the war. From what I could tell, Ferguson didn't not believe in a total war strategy, but he seemed to have certain limits. For example, he would burn crops, but he didn't exactly you know, enjoy burning down the homes of civilians and causing harm to them themselves. What I believe is in his mind, you know, crops and resources, they were vital to the rebellion, to the rebel soldiers. So it was it was more of a practical decision, I think, for him than it was necessarily delighting and being cruel. In fact, you know, we talked about Little Egg Harbor Massacre. During that, he actually refrained from burning down three houses that American soldiers were hiding in and taking refuge in because they were the homes of Quakers. In his mind, these were innocent civilians. And being pacifists, it's a central tenet of the Quaker belief, uh, to my understanding. So Ferguson believed many of the colonists to still be loyal to the crown, and therefore they were British, British citizens and should be treated like such. In fact, Ferguson is believed to be quoted as saying, we came not to make war on women and children, but to relieve their distress. Now, Tarleton, on the other hand, he didn't seem to have an issue with being cruel. Admittedly, we've dunked on Tarleton many, many times, and he is kind of that stereotypical Hollywood villain, as Joey uh, mentions. But to give Tarleton at least the tiniest bit of credit... Reportedly, he would have his own men hanged if they ravaged civilian women. And to be fair, we've talked about Waxhaws, but what I failed to mention at the time, which apologies for, because I just learned this, but according to uh, some eyewitnesses, he was pinned under his horse during the course of the battle. So it's argued that he didn't directly order the massacre at Waxhaws, but he certainly adopted a strategy of terror and didn't exactly shy away from the reputation he had gained. And of course, some of this could be Tarleton trying to do, you know, <laughs> diffuse a smear campaign or like create his own own narrative. We, we don't know. But it seemed like Ferguson and Tarleton differed on their views of the civilians. And this was important because Ferguson was actually able to recruit a lot of men to the side of the Loyalists and get them involved in you know this his fighting force. And so this takes place near the Battle of Camden. Now, I don't want to spend much time on this part because you know we may or may not end up doing a mini episode on this battle, but it is important to mention the Battle of Musgrove Mills as it does connect directly to King's Mountain and because Lonnie Anders. We gave him a shout out a couple weeks ago. He asked that we talked about it or, or he made mention of it. So Lonnie, this is for you. So Patrick Ferguson had about 300 soldiers, 100 of which being new militia, 200 being provincial regulars that were on their way to meet up with the rest of his force. On the way, they stopped at a 200 men strong British outpost near Musgrove Mills, uh, which Musgrove Mills was a important supplier locally of grain. But what they didn't know was that 200 patriots were planning to attack that outpost. Amongst these patriots, there were three leaders. There was Colonel Clark, he was command of men from Georgia, Colonel Williams, who led the South Carolinian contingent. And then there was this dude named 
Isaac Shelby. Now, we'll probably talk a lot more about Isaac Shelby in our next episode, but he commanded a group of rugged civilians called the Over Mountain Men, which we've brought them up a couple times on the podcast. Sorry to keep delaying uh, talking about the Over Mountain Men, but um, I promise we'll get to them in part two of this. So on August 19th, 1780, they set up a trap and managed to defeat the British force. In total, the British suffered 63 dead, an unknown number wounded, and 70 were taken prisoner. After the battle, this group of patriots briefly considered making another attack somewhere else, but they just learned about the devastating defeat at the Battle of Campton. So hearing this, they decided to flee. They went further into the backcountry and to the mountains. At this point, you know, mentioned it many, 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 many times, but it bears repeating that the war in the South was essentially a civil war. Oftentimes, neighbor would be antagonized against neighbor. So you had the Patriots or the Whigs on one side, and then you had the Loyalists or the Tories on the other. But you also had a third side to all of this, and that was just the normal civilian population that was just trying to stay out of it. In fact, John Shy, uh, he was a historian on this. He called this the, quote, triangularity of the struggle, unquote, in which the British and American combatants, quote, contended less with each other than for the support and control of the civilian population. That sounds like a pretty bad recipe for some awful stuff that happens. Um, so just for a second, imagine you had a dispute with your next door neighbor, maybe something or another to do with like, oh, you know, uh, you cut a little too close to my lawn when you're mowing your yard, something stupid, but just gets under your neighbor's nerves. Or maybe they just don't like you. So now this war comes to town and your neighbor decides to enlist in this army. They come to town. And those years of resentment just boil over, and now your house is burnt down and your crops are destroyed. On the flip side, imagine that your best friend in town uh, sympathizes with what is technically your country. Uh, he has sympathies for the British. So then, you know, one day a posse of pissed off rebels come, they take your friend and they tar and feather him, which, as we've talked about before, was actually very, very brutal. So, it was because of stuff like this that the war kind of kept escalating in the South. And because of the escalation, it became difficult not to take sides, which caused further escalations as more and more people joined. So while Patrick Ferguson maybe had a more favorable initial view of the colonists, his loyalist recruits, they had some personal beef. Ferguson, to not his credit, I guess to his discredit, was unable to effectively control his men. They were ill-disciplined, and um, yeah, I don't know if this was because he was just a poor leader or what. Some people have argued that as the war went on, Ferguson maybe just became more lax on his principles and his views on the um, on the civilians. They argue that in Ferguson's mind, initially he thought the war was going to be. You know, this rebellion was going to be quick to squash, but as things went on and things got tougher and essentially that maybe Ferguson believed that the war effort was not quite as breezy as he anticipated and that certain things then became more permissible once the rebellion, rebellion started 
to grow more strong. Uh, I'm not sure if I would go that far, but again, we don't know for certain. But in whatever case, Ferguson's men were not above personal vendettas and revenge. Additionally, it's clear from his correspondences that he had with Henry Clinton, who, just a reminder, he was head of the British war effort in America, that Ferguson was also an ambitious soldier who, like many Brits, also leaned towards the side of being overconfident. So combining his ambition, his cockiness, and uh, his growing frustration with the Southern campaign and these rebels, perhaps his principles started to slip and I think it's a bit ironic that this happened, um, given how much he disliked Tarleton. And in reality, they were not so dissimilar. Anyway, upon hearing about Musgrove Mills and how he lost a bunch of men, Ferguson went after Shelby's men. He furiously pursued them. Uh, eventually, Shelby and his overmountain men, they knew the land better. They were able to create enough separation to temporarily escape into the Appalachian Mountains, um, particularly its modern-day western North Carolina, eastern Tennessee, that area. Meanwhile, Ferguson was giving orders to continue doing his job of not only protecting Cornwallis's left flank, but to continue to recruit more people to the Loyalist cause. So... By September 10th, 1780, Ferguson managed to establish a camp in Gilberton, North Carolina. Uh, this is near modern-day Lake Lure, North Carolina, probably about, an, I'm going to say, 45 minutes away from modern-day Asheville, North Carolina. Then he was, you know, he was growing restless. He was fed up, which, you know, that was an effect that the war in the South had on many people. But in his mind, he knew that if he could just get these patriots in a fair fight uh, on the field of battle, then he could squash them. So he wanted to send a message, and he sent a message. In fact, quite literally, what he did, he sent uh, a Whig prisoner named Samuel Phillips into this area, the Appalachian Mountains, with a decree. Basically, he issued an ultimatum. He said if the people refused to surrender and swear their loyalty to their king, that he and his army would march, quote, over the mountains, hang their leaders, and lay their country waste with fire and sword, unquote. This threat that Ferguson issued, it would not produce the desired outcome that he expected, nor that he desired. And... That is where we will stop this episode. Just wanted to give you know some background information and you know some different perspectives on battles. I think we, I think it's easy for us to get a little wrapped up in one side of things. So I wanted to present a different perspective going into this battle. But next week we're going to talk about Isaac Shelby, the Overmountain Men, uh, a guy named Benjamin Cleveland. And how the Americans defeated Patrick Ferguson at the Battle of Kings Mountain. Spoiler, I know, but uh, I figured this happened over 200 years ago. So I figured it was fair game to mention. Anyway, that is it for this episode. Very excited to talk about part two of this and to be continuing on the series. Uh, excited to get Joey back on the show here soon, hopefully. And I'm also excited that um, preseason football is almost over. Got a game tonight, and so um, looking forward to watching that. Hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. 
from us at the gun rack have fun stay safe and we will see you at the range Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school accredited by the DEAC. It is headquartered at 1555 West University Drive in Tempe, Arizona. For more information about how you can craft your firearms future, visit sdi.edu.